listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I have to start my day off with at least one or two cups. I make it by hand. I usually use a pour-over. Sometimes I'll break out the Chemex on the weekend, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be using a Mr. Coffee. You could be using... Any cheap automatic machine, you might even have something a little fancier. But that doesn't matter. What does matter, first and foremost, is the beans. You have to start out with really high quality beans, and that's going to pretty much guarantee, no matter how you make your coffee, that you're going to turn out with a really good cup of coffee or espresso, depending on what you like. Now, just say no to the burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee that you find in your grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use my code JDP10, as in Jelly Donut Podcast 10, 10, and you get $10 off your first purchase. JDP10, and you get $10 off your first purchase at Kova Coffee. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. As soon as you know it, they roast it fresh. And it'll be right on your doorstep for you to enjoy in the morning or whenever you enjoy your coffee. So if you like the show, support Kova Coffee since they support us and you'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Tavi Costa. Tavi has been an analyst on Crestcat's investment team for more than five years with a focus on global cross-asset research. Tavi built Crestcat's macro model that identifies the current stage of the U.S. economic cycle through a combination of 16 factors. His research has been featured multiple times in financial publications such as Bloomberg and others. Enjoy my conversation with Tavi Costa. Tavi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. I, I appreciate you having me on and I, I look forward to it. Great. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first thing I like to start off with guests is going back to 2008, global financial crisis. Up until that point, we had SNL crisis. We had bailout of long-term capital management, plenty of things along the way, but nothing was really quite like 2008. So take us back to that time and what you were doing and what was going through your mind reading all those news articles coming coming across the tape and the wires. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm fairly young, so I was still in college, but I'm, I'm actually, uh, I was born and raised in Brazil. So that was a time when I, I, I was, you know, still, I, I just moved here to the U.S. And um, um, what I remember about it, uh, very vivid, actually, was was how my trips to Brazil and uh, to visit my family became, uh, you know, very expensive because the Brazilian real depreciated significantly 
uh, especially after you know eight or so uh, as the dollar actually appreciated. And then after that, uh, things got better for us uh, with the, the real actually appreciating. But my dad is uh, my dad was uh, is still a, a farmer. And, uh, his business was dramatically affected, and I've always lived uh, you know very closely with uh, with his businesses and. Um, and, and, and seeing that, that was uh, certainly an issue. But I think in terms of my academic years, uh, you know, we're, you know, I was very focused on understanding the global financial crisis and, and, and especially, you know, trying to understand the imbalances of the time and what really caused the issue. So it made me aware of, of business cycles, that business cycles exist and, and, you know, we should, we should, uh, we should, we should have, uh, you know, a, a upside of the economy, then the downturns are, are pretty normal as well. So I, uh, it made me appreciate history. And, um, I think that that's, uh, evolved me as an investor in a, in a very different way than a lot of people. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about the current cycle. So we're pretty long in the cycle now. There's a debate of maybe the Fed is trying to prop things up and keep things moving along um, and other central banks around the world. And let's talk about some of the leverage in the system. So back in 2008, we had obviously the mortgage debt. Now we have high, high records of corporate debt. We have sovereign debt you know, negative yields around the world. So talk a little bit about how you're looking at markets in the sense of where we are in the cycle and, and the, the buildups in different pockets in debt. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's it's uh, slightly different or, or very different in a way in terms of uh, you do have some uh, some debt imbalances in, in the governments and, and, and corporations in general. Um, however, what I think the problem is, is really on asset prices that are, you know, really uh, separating from from a lot of a profusion of macro indicators that have been deteriorating, really. Um, we, you know, we, we, we listed a, a few of them many times, I guess, in our letters and, or so. But one major one that we calculated was really the percentage of inversions in the yield curve. Um, so just calculating you know, the amount of spreads in the yield curve that got inverted, we got close to 70% of the yield curve is, was inverted, uh, which literally every time that happened, we had a recession either follow or coincide with that uh, number. So, um, you know, and then today now you have sort of uh, an issue with fundamentals as well, which is also uh, diverging from, from, from prices like corporate earnings. I, I showed a chart of corporate earnings uh, using the Russell 3000. That's been contracting now year over year, and not just that, but it's actually below inflation rate. It's the highest spread with inflation rate uh, since, uh, well, not below, but the highest spread between the inflation rates since uh, since the global financial crisis, and that that's a huge deal. And you have some other pockets of uh, they're very important, right? You know, M and A transactions have been drying up. You have a huge part of it, which is the declining uh, CEO and CFO confidence and uh, surveys, and and you have this massive list of of CEO uh, uh, and, 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 and just uh, other CFOs as well resigning uh, this year, which is just kind of telling. Uh, you have an insert selling uh, of, of stocks increasing uh, dramatically too. You know, construction spending is, is declining. You have job openings diverging from, from GDP numbers. Um, so, you know, what have been propping up markets really have been uh, the buybacks and, and, and the Federal uh, Reserve and other central bank policies that, that certainly have uh, have uh, come here. And I, th- I think one important message is that we haven't had any cost with that. You know, it's just 
uh, things have only, uh, it really just caused asset prices to rise as, as we kind of enjoy this, uh, this recent rally. But, you know, things in general have, have become very toppy in a lot of, a lot of ways. You got now the outer loans, uh, spreads with, with, uh, with the, uh, uh, Fed rates, uh, or not Fed rates, but the U.S. five year yields is now, you know, it's now rising at a level. Uh, that that looks kind of similar to uh, to what we have in 2008 or so. Uh, you have delinquency rates rising, so there's a lot of issues in the market in general. And meanwhile, you have stock market at all time highs. Uh, um, and um, you know, so I, I think I think those divergences uh, put us in a, in a way that uh, looking at the the cycle already, you know, the longest business cycle we've had in history. I think that uh, it makes us uh, be actually very defensive and bearish in general with with the U.S. economy and globally as well. Yeah, and I remember back going, going back to 2007, I think it was Blackstone and Fortress, maybe a couple others did an IPO right around that time, kind of at the best possible time for them and worst possible time for investors. So when you look at some of these signs along the way, whether it's M&A transactions or whether it's WeWork or I was just uh, did a tweet about Juicero, the VC funded uh, juice maker company from a couple years ago. So you can just kind of see these funny things kind of happen along the way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, this marks the top, but when you start seeing these things piling up, it really seems like there's signs of excess all over the place. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the busted IPO ideas, the, the delayed or canceled IPOs, I mean, this is, all, this is all part of it. I mean, look at Uber, Lyft, you know, WeWork. This is uh, beyond me. It's down what, uh, you know, uh, it's now over like seventy or sixty percent from uh, from its peak. I mean, it's this is all a big deal. You got leveraged loans stumbling now, um, so you know it's uh, there's a lot of pockets of the market. You know, Amazon, uh, Amazon is never it's not it's really neglecting this 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 move on on stocks at all time highs. I mean, Amazon is is it broke down from a multi-year um, uh, support or resistance line and, and it's been kind of, or support line, it's been kind of, you know, it, it, it hasn't gone up above it. So it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's another one that is, uh, that is sort of a message to, uh, to investors as Amazon is probably the, the most successful story of, of, of this business cycle, I would say. Um, and it, you know, when you have a company like that, not following along, it's, uh, it's it's kind of scary to to be honest. Yeah, and let's move to talk a little bit about the balance sheet. So here in the U.S., the Fed before the crisis, the balance sheet was around eight hundred billion. It grew organically through conducting open market operations. After the crisis, they took it up all the way to four and a half trillion. And the idea was obviously to have that injection of liquidity right off the bat, um, but then. Right around, you know, you had 2012, 13, they started doing additional rounds of QE. And then the message was, okay, we're going to start rolling this, the balance sheet off. It was going to be like watching paint dry, all, all the things we've talked about it many times on the show here. And now we see the balance sheet actually tick, ticking up, even though it's on the shorter end of the curve, these 30 day bills, but this, not really debating here whether we want to call it QE or the not QE, but 
talk a little bit about the balance sheet and and how that ties into rising asset prices and and how you're you're viewing the balance sheet as far as can they ever roll this thing off or, or are we kind of stuck here? Yeah, I, I think first of all, the eight hundred billion dollars you referred to during the global financial crisis. There's this kind of crazy. Uh, reliance on central banks nowadays that that they're gonna they're gonna uh, be able to prevent the business cycle from turning and I think people forget about is that pr- even prior to that 800 billion increase you're referring to there was a, lo- a large increase close to two trillion dollars of increase in, in the balance sheet globally uh, in other words central banks were already printing money prior to the to the global financial crisis and and that then never prevented the crisis from turning um, now. You know, I guess I guess I think that the biggest thing here today is that monetary policies have gradually become more uh, aggressively throughout the years. And uh, and and as we pointed out before, uh, there is a major uh, reason for this is that, you know, we, we haven't had any costs with that. You know, one could argue that the cost was that we now have financial asset bubbles everywhere. Uh, and that's absolutely right. But that's not what exactly what I'm referring to. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm referring to the kind of uh, structural problems with the monetary dilution and near zero interest rate policies that didn't really cause inflation. Um, you know, we all thought the inflation, at least I thought I was kind of surprised that it, that didn't cause inflation to uh, uh, to pick up. But then it was uh, perhaps a, a big reason for that was was that a, a, an opposite effect that you would think is that a cheap money allowed a lot of uh, money losing businesses to survive. And more importantly, they provided goods and services at very cheap prices. I mean, I can mention at least uh, 100 of those that, that, that have that were able to do that. Uber is a major one for, for sure. Um, but but this mindset's now uh, changing. You can call it that we work a factor or whatever. Um, and, and you've seen a ton of those, you know, kind of bus IPO stories and, and SoftBank now under pressure um, uh, with those private equity deals at, at, at huge valuations that completely um, uh, distorted from from fundamentals. And I think investors now seeking more profitable businesses, um, you know, are, are going to force these companies to really either cut costs or raise the price of their goods and services to really show a path of uh, to, towards profitability in general. So I, I think that's that's where that's where you start seeing the cost of of, of monetary policy, and when you really start seeing that, this is this is when the the, the issue becomes because I, I that's when money printing starts really uh, turning into more of an inflationary problem. And at the same time, you have the Fed already increased the balance sheet by eight, you know almost three hundred billion dollars since August. That's a thirty five percent annualized growth in the balance sheet. Uh, we already have three cuts since July. Uh, and it's all happened at a time when the core and median CPI are already at a decade highs. Um, and on top of that, you have the government deficit issue, which is massive. And and at the same time, which is crazy, you have the, the unemployment rate at near all time lows. Um, so so you know all all of those things are, are kind of are kind of interesting. I, which makes me think that um, uh, one of the the biggest surprise of the next uh, the next uh, change in the business cycle here would be that central bank interventions will come at a cost um, uh, this time. And and at the same time, as as, as more of an investor uh, a mindset, when you when you look at things like inflation expectations, they're 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 near forty year lows, you know. So it's 
uh, it's it's in other words, it's very hard to to not be a gold bull these days, you know, especially with the setup of, of the central banks doing what they're doing and what you ex- would expect it to do as we continue to see the macro indicators uh, that I alluded to in your first question continue to deteriorate um, uh, as as we get into this uh, what we think it's going to be a downturn in the cycle. Yeah, you brought up a good point about technology being deflationary and cheap money actually being deflationary in a sense. I saw a good article talking about millennials and it could be other, you know, older generations as well, but people being subsidized, (laughs) their lifestyles being subsidized by VCs. So they (laughs) take an Uber to work and it costs, you know, maybe seven or eight bucks or or 10 bucks and then they get a delivery from blue apron for uh you know for for their dinner later that night that's a 15 dollar cost or whatever um and, and you can see you know a casper mattress or whatever and and, and not just to single out these brands specifically because there are others too but it's interesting because maybe when you when you actually look at the real costs of without all the VC subsidy, uh, it could be double or triple or, or, or much more than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, it's it, when you think about it, I mean, there is uh, a lot of people talk about the, the, the technological changes being deflationary or positive deflationary in a way of, of how, you know, just, just the, the innovations part of it. And, and my thinking is a lot more on the cheap money that allowed them to be uh, you know, to beat money losing businesses for a long time and, and, and actually provide those really cheap services and, and goods in general. Like Netflix is a great one, right? I mean, Netflix would probably never survive in the seventies or sixties. I mean, who would be, you know, uh, funding a, a company like that for, for almost a decade losing money every quarter? I mean, it's, you know, on a free cash flow basis and then just increasing debt over time. I mean, you know, you would never think that that would actually happen in the, in the, in the 70s or so when inflation was actually a problem. Um, and now, you know, you start seeing other the other part of it, too, is that Netflix is now raising cost of their membership and things like that. So that's all um, kind of aligned with with where I think that could be either they're going to have to raise price of their goods and services um, or you're going to see some sort of effect that we saw with WeWork. Uh, which is cutting labor force, for instance, you know, and that that's going to have an impact on on labor markets in general, obviously. So, uh, the consumer behavior is, I think, it's going to look a lot different in the next ten years. Yeah, and you brought up a good point about the inflation expectations and where we might be going. So, one of the big themes on the podcast is looking at this dynamic that some people are thinking about and looking at of maybe this paradigm shift of moving to a more inflationary environment. And we've been in this deflationary environment for so long that you can't hardly find anybody talking about inflation. And obviously, that's quite a contrarian viewpoint. So let's talk a little bit about the impetus for moving to that type of environment as far as maybe rates rising on the longer end consumer prices going up, as you just alluded to, and then implications on assets like gold and and other things. Yeah. Um, Well, I I think that, uh, um, you know, I I don't want to necessarily make a point that I, you know, that we're going to have inflation sometime um, soon. I, I think that there's there's a lot of um, the, the interesting part is, is exactly what you alluded to is that, is that it's not necessarily priced in in the market today that you're going to have inflation. And that's where if you put your trader's hat, 
is is where it, it becomes uh, a little bit more and more interesting in terms of that. Um, yeah. There's no doubt that that you know the demographic issues um, have been deflationary. You know, regardless if it's uh, through aging problems or or just or just uh, you know the baby boomers are haven't saved enough and. And, and, and they're not being able to spend a lot of money. They're now having to save them more or maybe even re-enter the labor market. So there's a lot of parts of that that, that became uh, there are very uh, clear deflationary issues. But, you know, and the technological changes that we just talked about. But this is kind of all, seems to be a lot priced in in the markets today, which, as you said, it is a very contrarian view to have a, a, a more inflationary. It, even if we don't have a, a blowout, you know, sort of a, a crazy inflationary uh, setup, um, uh, you know, even if it increases the, the, the expectations from record lows to, you know, to, to average, um, I think that that's, you know, there's a lot of assets that, that are, are massively underpriced on, on, on those conditions. So, yeah, and I think you can just look at treasuries maybe normalizing the ten-year normalizing to five, four, five, six percent, and what and the, what would that do to portfolios, and what would that do to 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 assets like gold? That's a really great point. Yeah, um, uh, and maybe, maybe not going to ten percent, but even maybe just normalizing upwards. Yeah, and I, and I couldn't agree more. Um, unfortunately, I don't have like a, a extremely strong view about interest rates. Uh, uh, you know, I have a much stronger view about gold, uh, and the reason for that is just because of the flows of of of, of central banks in general. You know, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt. And yeah, let's let's get into your views on gold. And you posted a great chart uh, looking at. The, uh, silver versus gold, and, and looking at Bitcoin. So let's talk a little bit about gold. Um, in the context of central bank, uh, you know, balance sheets and maybe as kind of that alternative currency. Yeah, the more long term, um, I guess, case for gold is is the fact that is you know very or historically undervalued relative to the size of the monetary base. In other words, how much money have been printed globally, not just uh, in the U.S. And in that case, that's uh, that's uh, I guess that's a strong case for more in the long term. Part of it now, the short-term part of it, which is what is interesting, is that if you look at just the yields, we we're just talking about the the entire treasury curve is now below inflation. Um, and and if you look back in history, that actually only happened in 2015, late 2015 and early 2016, which was a very positive era uh, or, or period for for gold prices and and, and gold and silver miners. Um, but, but, but where, where I think it's different from that time is that back then we were actually in a tightening cycle that the Fed was actually moving away from that, uh, that kind of extended the business cycle. We have today though is, is the Fed is, is doing quite the opposite. Fed is printing money. The Fed is cutting interest rates. Um, and, 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 and the inflation is, is starting to rise. So I think that, you know, what is, you know, uh, we're we're in a, in a moment right now where real yields are becoming negative, and it's 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 it tends to be periods when when gold um, outperforms, and I I like that a lot about that about gold, and I also like the fact that it's I, in my view is is a true safe haven asset to hold during periods of, of turmoil in markets in general, um, and I, I can go on and even um, use uh, stats that we, we looked back in terms of, uh, of of times of when you have yield curve inversions, um, so not even just uh, relative to inflation, just looking at yield curve inversions in general are actually periods that are very uh, very positive for for 
for uh, investors to hold uh, precious metals in general. Um, and then at the same time, you know, we've had a, a when you, you know, kind of, an, an, again, not just the traders have, but put a more of a, a macro value investor hat as well. Uh, you looked at this, you know, industry of, of miners being um, in, in a bear market for since 2011 when, when gold peaked. And, and, and since then, you know, right now we have a, a, a lot of those companies with projects um, uh, and mining projects that they're uh, trading, you know, the, the net asset value of those projects are significantly um, uh, above the value of those companies being valued in the markets today. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's like you can buy companies today in, in, in the mining business that might make um, a, an amount of free cash flow for 2020 that, that it's almost like two to three times what their value in the market today. So where do you find deals like that today out there? There, there isn't, um, you know, not even in oil markets, you can find that. So I, I find that uh, an, an incredible opportunity. Um, and I think there's a lot of upside for, for miners. And I think there's a lot of upside uh, for gold in general. And the, 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 the last part that I think it's, is huge is when you look at the commodities to equity ratio, I think that's a must chart for everyone's. If you want to, if you want to be an investor, you got to look at that chart. I mean, that that is basically at a at a you know you can call it at a forty year low. Um, you know, it's retesting levels of the seventies or so, actually below those levels now. So you know, when you looked at that and you looked at the average of of commodities to equity ratio all the way back to the nineteen hundreds, we're even below levels of of prior to nineteen twenty nine. So that makes you think that equities are expensive, first of all, but also commodities are really cheap. And when you look at that relative to gold, gold is even worse because a lot of the commodity part of the of the ratio is actually being uh, weighted on oil and energy energy commodity uh, commodities. So when you look at precious metals portion of it, it's even worse um, in terms of the imbalance historically. So that's that's where we feel excited about for the next few years. Yeah, it's really interesting. You posted a chart, silver versus gold. How are you looking at silver compared to gold as as a setup right now? Well, you know, uh, in terms of the miners, um, there are a lot of silver miners and juniors that haven't moved as much as the larger businesses in, in that industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's a kind of a, a, an interesting setup if you have such a, a, a bullish view on the entire um, the entire sector, um, which I do, our industry. Um, and now in terms of, you know, obviously silver is, is a very, uh, you know, is, is, is the high beta version of gold and, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very volatile, but, uh, but, and it offers uh, different aspects of gold too. It's not just, uh, uh, more gold as more of a, there, there's an ideology behind gold, obviously, and there's a, you know, a history behind it and silver, uh, there's also really, really strong demand from the, you know, no, not just industrial side of it, but especially in the, in the car manufacturing industry in general, um, which mm-hmm. I think it's only going to, you know, going to only going to increase. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I try to look at silver uh, as, as you know, historically undervalued relative to equities and historically undervalued relative to gold. Um, so in our view, you know, we do have a, a higher position on silver today uh, relative to the volatility of silver, too. Um, and, you know, we think we think there's tremendous upside on that as well. I mean, the case for silver and gold is, is compelling and, um, and the miners um, right now we've been adding to a lot of the silver miners 
as I just alluded to, there's, there's, I think there's a catch up um, for silver miners here on the upside uh, to follow up along with, uh, you know, ETFs like GDX. So GDX is just a, a kind of average Joe uh, way of, of investing in, uh, in, in gold miners. Um, and, you know, I think if you look at SIL, which is uh, another uh, ETF for for silver miners, it's been lagging that ETF significantly, and I think I think that that's uh, suggests is a, a significant upside here in the following months. Right, and do you have any views on platinum? I know it's lagged gold for a while, and some people were were looking at that trade. Do you have any views there at all? Uh, we we do just uh, as a way of diversifying or or mm-hmm. or positions in the whole space. Um, we do have a position in platinum too, um, but it, it, nothing you know nothing out of normal. Like I don't have a whole case for. I have a much better case for gold and silver. And I think that if that yeah. happens, I think those uh, other commodities that are on the side they're probably going to do well. I think. You know, what I'm trying to understand is what are the best ways? I, I do believe that the most important chart there is out there, it is that commodities to equity ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what are the best ways of, of, of implementing or expressing that view in a portfolio? I still think that precious metals is one way, but it's starting to find it interesting when you see agricultural commodities sort of breaking out, especially coffee and some others breaking out from like multi-decade, uh, you know, uh, uh, resistance lines. And it's, you know, th- those are all kind of interesting plays because I think that uh, one major part of why we haven't seen inflation yet in, in the U.S. or globally in a lot of places, I guess, developed economies, you haven't seen it yet, is because we haven't seen a, a, a also a disruption on, a supply disruption on, on commodities in general. If you looked at the, you know, last 10 years of, 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 uh, of commodities in general, I think just uh, palladium was one of the few ones that actually appreciated uh, uh, from for, for the last ten years. I mean, uh, there's really no appreciation on commodity prices at all. Now you're seeing things like pork prices, like in in, in China, for instance, and you clearly seeing a huge downward effect on the economy because of just one thing, um, you know. And then you know there are so many cases throughout history, like the seventies, you have uh, oil supply disruption and you know, we haven't had any of those and we tend to have those at, at some point. So I, uh, you know, that's kind of another way of, of looking at it is, is uh, historically you tend to see some sort of su- supply disruption in commodities in general. We haven't seen any for the last 10 plus years. So, uh, I, yeah, I still I still uh, favor precious metals, but I think there's opportunity for other parts of, of the of, of, of uh, commodities in general. Right. And do you have any views on Bitcoin being something similar like a store of value to gold or how how are you looking at Bitcoin? Yeah, I think Bitcoin has two aspects to it. I mean, it, uh, one way is is a bet on on technology is, is so it's sort of a risk on sort of aspect to it. Um yeah. and you you're betting on uh cryptography, you have you betting that it's going to be a a vehicle that that sort of uh, I don't know disrupts this uh, government control of our money and and so forth and it's very similar to gold in that sense, uh, but it, it's limited in supply uh, uh, in a way um, and this is more Bitcoin not cryptocurrencies in general because if you can create new cryptos it's just you just you know supply is is endless in that in that way. Um, so I, I just view, you know, again, I, I favor um, gold and silver and precious metals in general. However, I do believe that, you know, if you look back in the last five months, Bitcoin's down like 45% or so. 
I, I view I view Bitcoin as as perhaps a, a, a kind of a call option on inflation, which is you know again it, mm-hmm. you know if if that inflation expectations are going to rise from where they are here. Uh, and and just monetary dilution in general from central banks. I think that that's only going to continue uh, globally, not just in the U.S. And and it, as you can s- start to see more issues on political crises elsewhere in, in terms of you know, Turkey, Hong Kong, uh, South America is having a lot of issues um, now, as you know. Uh, and 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 that's where that's where Bitcoin, especially for having this network, the the. Uh, the, the network effect and 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 the first uh, mover advantage uh, is is where it becomes a very um, uh, useful uh, vehicle uh, for for situations like that. So this is where I come from in terms of Bitcoin. I think it's more of a call option on inflation here and 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 currency crises and and and, and currency wars in general, which I think it's likely to happen. But you know, anyways, that's uh, that that would be my take on Bitcoin. Yeah, I think the call option is a really interesting way to look at it, especially when you look at the market cap versus something like gold or or other things. You can see it as that as that call option and maybe size the portfolio appropriately. <laughs> Absolutely, because if you do have a downturn like you had in, in, in 2000, right, which is totally possible, we have valuations in terms of as, especially equities uh, record over value and almost you know almost any any way you can look at at least we calculate at least eight of them are at all-time highs today so you now when you looked at that if there's sort of an e- euphoria sort of uh, bust um you know that's that bitcoin can get ca- caught up on that uh, why because it, it does have the risk on aspect to it it does have the technology bet uh if you will and 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 i think that that's where it's uh you know it carries a little higher risk than than things like gold that, that I think offer a lot more of a safe haven uh, um, aspect to it that I that I, I feel more comfortable having a much higher position on it and, and spreading in different ways of playing it. In terms of Bitcoin, we just have a small position on Bitcoin itself and 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 we're just holding that and as as a way of, of another way of, of betting on inflation going higher. Yeah, 10 years uptime and the strength of the network, you can look at a lot of a lot of things with Bitcoin, and that's pretty good, right? But compared to the five thousand plus history of gold, it's it's got quite a long way to go. So um, I think if you size size the portfolio appropriately compared to just the the length of history there, then um, you'll probably be doing pretty well um, just with the sizing on that. Now let's go to looking around the world. I know you have done a lot of work on China and and looking at some of the global macro issues going on around the world. Let's talk a little bit about China and where the economy is now um, and how they've kind of grown the economy, some say maybe a little bit too recklessly. Yeah, we calculate the the growth in uh, in 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 balance sheet in terms of uh, just assets in, in in the banks in China somewhere close to four to five hundred percent normalized growth since the two thousand and eight crisis. There's different ways you can calculate that. Measuring. That's not even counting the off balance sheet numbers. So there's certainly a, a credit imbalance in in places like China um, that you know cause other derivative sort of issues in places like Australia or Canada and also Hong Kong. 
um, and and even some some emerging market uh, places that depend on places like China uh, for export reasons. And um, so what we're seeing today in China is is definitely there is a you know a, a housing bubble. There's a real estate bubble in China in the in a few of the of of the larger uh, cities or regions. If, China um, that um, that we see, and also you know you have the home builders uh, uh, look a lot like the home builders here you had in the U.S. Um, a, a lot of those are real money losing businesses for a long time. We aggregated uh, their free cash flow for the last uh, uh, ten years or so. They lost close to two hundred and fifty billion dollars of. of of, of money in the last 10 years. So that's, that's quite incredible. At the same time, they grew, uh, their debt of, uh, or net debt. So, so that's including cash on it, um, or excluding the, the, the cash part of it. Um, uh, and, and you can see somewhere close to a, an outstanding balance of $600 billion of debt. So it, it's quite interesting to see that sort of divergence. And at the same time, you have, you know, a massive, uh, a government uh, intervention in a way, even in the housing market, but in general. So, um, uh, then, then you have the issue with with Hong Kong, which is which is very clear. Uh, now, in China, what we see now is is the current account issue that has been shrinking for a long time. Uh, for the last ten years, somewhere close to ten percent of of the current account in China has uh, shrunk. Um, and and now the political issue here adds a, a, another level of of complexity to the to the to the whole macro scenario. Um, in in China as well, you have the, the inflation problem now starting to rise. Inflation is now close to 3.8 or 4% on the headline CPI, which is a huge part of that is the pork prices. And, you know, it's another example of when you have an embedded growth model that depends on uh, or more debt to grow less uh, GDP units, um, you know, you in, in, and you have a, an inflationary issue, you know, that becomes a problem for you to continue to dilute your currency in order to generate growth, uh, which has been what we've seen in China. You know, just look at the PBOC balance sheet. If you think that the, the Fed balance sheet is large, just look at the PBOC is, is, even, is even larger. Um, and, and, you know, when we talk about, let's say, just issues with the repo market here in the U.S., well, look at the China. China. China had repo market issues for the last <laughs> five years or so. I mean, we've been following that for forever, and it's uh, you know their their repo facilities have, have always um, had issues in trying to uh, to intervene to to help up and prop up the markets in the, in the short term. So uh, now you're having a, a problem in Hong Kong, and 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 Hong Kong is an issue um, because um, obviously I've never seen a political problem that didn't cause either a currency crisis or or just an economic problem. And now you're seeing very clearly on GDP numbers and and just macro indicators in general in Hong Kong. They're, they're very weak, um, and we think that that's um, you know when you when you look at the implied volatility again, putting your in, in your your kind of a trader's hat, you look at the implied volatility for Hong Kong dollar. Um, and, you know, it's it's extremely cheap for you to put on a bet that the Hong Kong the Hong Kong dollar uh, peg is 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 going to depeg. Um, and so we have uh, we've had a, a, a bet on that for a while. There's also a housing bubble issue in Hong Kong. Uh, we've been calculating and looking at the banks in Hong Kong. You can see a deceleration of deposits growth uh, that is one of the largest in a long time. You, not, you have another issue in Hong Kong that is, in, especially in the financial uh, industry, 
that yes, the banks have a huge amount of assets relative to GDP. Depending on the way you calculate it, you can get numbers close to 800% of GDP today of banking assets relative to uh, their economy. Uh, but also you have the provision for loan losses, uh, which is which is crazy, right? You have all these loans um, and the provision for loan losses have been getting smaller and smaller. And, and, and you can look at that relative to revenues. Um, and, and when you looked at that ratio, it's, it's close to like, I think the median last time I calculated was close to 1.4% of revenues for, for loan loss provisions. It's crazy because that's even lower than levels like the Asian crisis or prior to Asian crisis levels. And just for you to remember, if you do have a disruption in the market in which loans are, you know, the loan losses are larger than what they're provisioning for, uh, you know, back in, in, in term, times of, of turmoil, uh, that ratio goes up or that percentage goes up to like 25 to 30 percent. That's, that's kind of the number you had in, in, in the Asian crisis, uh, or, or also, uh, during other periods like the global financial crisis. Um, and, and, you know, th- what does that do with, with earnings for those banks? And then, so that's, a, you know, that's a huge part of problem too but yeah and you mentioned the peg so people have been talking about this for a while with the hong kong dollar and 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 watching this news unfold what's your sense now does it look like what's your conviction at this point as far as breaking the peg and them keeping able to kind of keep things going well, it's, it's pretty high because when, when you have a situation, you know, a lot of people rely a lot on the fact that they have a lot of foreign reserves um, to defend the bag. But the problem is not that. The problem is that when you, when you, when you sell reserves, that's, that's uh, technically quantitative tightening, right? So you can't, you know, you, you can't afford that when you're already having a downturn in your economy. So that's mm-hmm. a huge part of it. That I think not a lot of people are considering. A lot of times, it's easier for you to depeg, even if it's for a bit. You know, let's say you know from seven eighty five, we go up to eight and a half or nine. I mean, this is a big change in, in the dynamics for for their uh, monetary system. Um, and, and China is the same kind of the same issue, right? The the USD or the CNH or or the CNY is is kind of the same problem. Uh, you know, the uh, how what you know what. How much can the central bank really use their foreign reserves for when you have a, a downturn in the economy already happening? Um, it's it's very you know those are kind of a uh, that's why you know you don't know exactly what's going to play out if they're going to defend the PAG or if they're going to defend their economy um, and why you have a lot of times you have what is called a twin crisis uh, which you know they try to defend first of all the PAG the economy falls apart there's a ton of capital outflows that causes even further pressure in the currency and then the the currency falls apart. Uh, that's you know that's a, that's a pretty normal uh, thing that happens, uh, especially during in, in, in emerging market economies and and, and smaller economies. Um, you know, in in the sense that would be kind of Hong Kong compared to places like U.S. Um, so yeah, our conviction is pretty high right now, especially with the issues with uh, geopolitical issues with the U.S. Um, and. And the problems with Donald Trump and Xi Jinping now, um, no, which I don't, I don't think there's no way they're going to sign a significant uh, trade deal. Uh, going forward. We've been hearing about it for a while, right? Well, you know, it always goes back to the one thing. I mean, China cannot afford to have a negative uh, current account balance, uh, mm-hmm. and their current account is now at one point four percent of GDP or so. Um, and you know. 
can, uh, can he go lower? Well, that's essentially what Trump is asking for. Uh, they won, you know, Trump wants more exports from the U.S. and, and wants more or less imports from China. So how do you how do you fix that issue without having a, a problem with their 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 current account? I mean, uh, I, I you know I I really think that there's no way a, a significant trade deal is is going to happen here uh, going forward. Can we have a small thing? Sure, because they're having issues with the pork prices problem and all that and agricultural issues as well. But, um, you know, nothing is going to be as significant as I think the market is, has it priced in today, uh, especially in the, in the U.S. equity markets. Right. And long, moving to the Chinese yuan itself, looking longer term, there's been some talk about maybe China partially backing the yuan with gold, um, ramping up some of their at least it looks like ramping up some of their purchases of gold in the past, I don't know, call it year or two. Do you have any views there longer term or any speculations just from a 20,000 foot view? Well, we, we got a lot of that comment back in the beginning of uh, this year, uh, which the you know, mm-hmm. one was trading at a very tight band with the gold prices. Um, and, you know, just look at gold and remember terms is almost not moving. It was essentially pegged for the last three years. And what we're saying, well, is is that, you know, is that a real thing? Is that a thing that is going to persist going forward? Um, and there were a lot of China bulls that saying that China was smart for doing that. Um, and I, I think that if they're going to pack their currency against, you know, they're going to have, you know, there's no way they can keep that pack um, in, in a sustainable way with how much debt they have because it's uh, they're going to have to defend their currency almost like nonstop. So that's kind of the, the issue. What we see is that, uh, in terms of betting against uh, an emerging market crisis is that uh, looking back in history, one of the best ways, sure, you can have twin crisis, you can have an equity market crisis, you can have a, a currency crisis, um, but the equity markets go up. Um, you know, there's so many uh, uh, different ways to unfold. But the one thing that is very normal is that gold in local currency terms tends to rise when you have a, uh, some sort of issues, especially credit problems like this, like China um, uh, has. Um, so, you know, we uh, today find gold in remember terms being extremely undervalued. So that puts us in a position where, yes, we're bullish on precious metals, but we're also bullish on the dollar because we think that actually the dollar is a much better alternative than remember. And therefore, uh, as you remember the values, you would expect gold in remember terms to devalue even further um, or to appreciate Um so that's uh, that, that's where that's where we see the the, the bet here. I think there's uh, almost, you know if if China wants to peg their currency against against gold, I think it's going to have to be pegging uh, at a much higher level than where it is today. Yeah, and you mentioned the dollar, so let's t- talk a little bit about that. On the program, we've had some talk about this debate whether we've seen the lows in Treasury yields. The 10-year, we touched down, we broke that low going down to 1.38, something like that. We retested that in 2016. When you look at yields around the world, the U.S. looks great on a relative basis, obviously, compared to a lot of the negative yielding sovereign debt out there. And then there's this debate about, okay, if there is a market dislocation or, or some type of crisis, then we might see a repeat of 2008 where people rush into treasuries. And then the opposite side of the coin is some people say, well, it might not happen that way this time. Maybe it'll be something like gold. 
So how are you looking at, uh, I know you, you mentioned you didn't have a strong um, uh, view on rates, but how are you looking at the dollar um, in this in this tangled puzzle yeah. of, of things going on? I mean, you set it up perfectly in terms of why, first of all, rates is so hard to have a strong opinion on is because there is, you know, certainly a flow from investors uh, enjoying this kind of uh, yield differential. Uh, yeah. There's about, you know, you, you don't have to go too far on the curve to to find, you know, uh, treasuries attractive. I mean, there's about like 17 economies today have their 10-year yields below the LIBOR rates or Fed funds rates. It's like, you know, you don't have to go far. You don't have to buy 10-year yields. You can buy, um, you know, three-month yields and, and you're already doing very well relative to the rest of the world. So that creates a demand for not just for treasuries, but creates a massive demand for for the dollar, first of all. Um, right. Cause those are all priced in the dollar terms. And, and if you're going to purchase those instruments, you're going to be buying dollars too. Um, and, and what we're seeing today is that, um, you know, there's clearly a currency war problem. I mean, central banks are easing more and more. And, 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 and I think, I think that the dollar here looks attractive relative to, to other things. I think that relative to gold, it doesn't look attractive, but relative to Chinese renminbi, to the real, look at what's happening with the real kind of breaking out recently now to, to, you know, in nominal terms at all time highs. Um, and, and I think that's only going to continue as, as we continue to see, especially now look at emerging markets. It's very interesting. Fed is extremely easy um, uh, in terms of policies, very accommodative policies. And at the same time, emerging market currencies are selling off. That's kind of odd. Um, that should be helping emerging market currencies and not hurting them. And at the same time, you're seeing, you know, places like the real kind of, uh, kind of falling apart. Um, so I think that the dollar is, is just a better alternative in general. And I, I, I firm, firmly believe that, uh, that's the biggest, um, the biggest issue with, uh, you know, it goes back to the treasury problem of why, um, I think that the treasury is, uh, is, is a tough call because at the same time as you have this, uh, kind of, uh, you know, flows towards, t- towards treasuries, you also have the problem of, of inflation or core CPI and median CPI being, uh, you know, a, at a 10 year or a decade high. Um, and, and, and that's happening and it's kind of on the cusp of, of, of becoming a problem in my view, because if you look historically, when inflation rates start to rise, when you get to levels like, you know, three and a half, four percent, um, you know, don't think it's all control. That's when, it, when that, that's when things really get out of hand. And it's kind of like, you know, when, when, when the consumer behavior changes, uh, it, you know, it, it's a big change. It's it, usually that macro setup stays for the next decade or so. And I think we're kind of, you know, uh, playing with fire with that, uh, especially now with uh, with how, you know, with the Federal Reserve doing what's, what's been doing. And you have a, a Trump on top of it um, uh, trying to do even more, you know, calling for negative rates and calling for uh, a weak dollar and so forth. So um, in terms of the dollar itself, we have we, we have a, a bullish view on, on the dollar relative to Chinese renminbi. We have a bullish view on that versus uh, the Hong Kong dollar and the Brazilian real and a few other uh, South American economies. As we think that there, you know, if you looked at, let's say, you know, the Brazilian economy today, um, it has been, it's kind of interesting how... You, 
there is a there was a speech from the from uh, from Paulo Guedes, um, uh, which is uh, a, 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 obviously a, a, I guess a, a, a very important person in, um, in terms of uh, uh, politically, um, kind of uh, saying that there's no problem with the real, that the real is you know just get used to the real being more depreciated as as it is, and it, at the same time they're selling foreign reserves to defend uh, the currency. So there's clearly a problem. You know, it's kind of watch what they do and not what they say, uh, kind of mm-hmm. issue. And I I. I think that that's uh you know that goes back to places like like china it goes back to places like you know chile um when you start seeing those emerging market currencies is starting to sell off significantly um you know you would expect that the asian currencies especially china uh it would kind of follow along in the same pattern so i think it's a, a matter of time for us to see we've been we've had a, a a bearish position on chinese yuan for the last four years or so um, and or five years really. 2014 was when when we started to short that. At the end of 2014, 2015 was a very profitable year. Uh, when when uh, August devaluation happened, 2016 the whole devalued throughout the whole year. 2017 was the only year that we actually lost money on that bet. Um, 2018 was a profitable year, and this year has been a profitable year too uh, in terms of that. So it's it's kind of like I I, I still think there's a lot more to go. Uh, I think, you know, we're talking to uh, some other funds and this guy said it's it's not my line, but I loved the way he said it. I think we're at one tweet from a, a 7.2, 7.25 handle on USDC and H. And I totally agree with that. Um, you know, if there's any issues on trade, um, a trade agreements here, I, I think any issues, I think I think that currency is going to just blow up and it's just going to at least go to a 7, 7.2 handle uh, very quickly. So, um, and obviously... I, that's very deflationary. <laughs> and that's why it's another point of, of why it's hard to make a call on, 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 um, on treasuries uh, and why I like gold, because um, uh, gold offers not just that uh, a bet on on monetary dilution in general, but also you get um, the other part of it, which is safe haven aspect to it. Uh, which I'm not sure if treasuries are going to act like you know a lot of this crowded risk parity strategies are betting on. Um, I, I have a feeling that could play out very differently this time, uh, just because a lot of people are, are have a short term memory of looking back and global financial crisis and the tech bus and how treasuries worked during those two uh, times. And, but, but if you look back in the seventies, it was very opposite from, from that. So, um, you know, and maybe, maybe this could play out different. I, I just don't have a high conviction on it. And I, 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 I'd much rather have a view on gold. Yeah. It's interesting because as you mentioned, there's different ways this could play out in China in maybe in the equity market or the currency, but Either way, when you look at China as the growth engine of the world, um, if A, if they're reporting their GDP a few notches above to where it is, it could mean right now we're actually uh, on a negative kind of growth um, trajectory in the world. And then if if they do actually uh, you know, have some sort of blow up, then that's it's hard to see where the, the worldwide growth is going to come from. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally actually agree with the fact that I don't, I don't think China is, 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 is growing at a 6% uh, handle at all. Um, matter of fact, if you looked at the news on from the Chinese government, I mean, why are you so concerned about systematic financial risks all the time? If their economy is growing at 6%, I mean, I mean, which economy is growing at 6% is having so many issues like that. I mean, it's, 
pretty odd. Yeah, I um, saw a good chart showing, um, you know, maybe the real number is, let's call it five instead of six, seven. Um, and then the U.S. ticking along where we are. Um, and when you look at, you know, if China's growing at, let's say, four or five or whatever the number is, that that actually means worldwide growth is in the negative. Yeah. So, um uh, it, it's actually a pretty big <laughs> difference, those few ticks. You also mentioned, um, you know, the memories of the financial crisis. We've had some great discussions on the show about this idea of everyone just being so paranoid. And when you look across the street both ways and you do that three or four times before you cross the street, you're less likely to be hit by a bus. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of been playing out over the years but at the same time i feel like we have these these massive dislocations that have built up to where there's there could come a point to where even if people are just so careful and and looking across the street both ways that you know there's there's absolutely no way to avoid this There, there has to be some kind of reset at some point so let's kind of close on that piece of this idea of cycles don't matter or, you know, we can extend the cycle as long as we can. And we've started to hear these things, these type of comments from, from actually real (laughs) portfolio managers and real uh, pundits out there. Yeah. um, You know, the, the, I think the best way to approach that topic is in my view is to look at where I think is probably one of the most compelling cases for the bearish view which is the yield curve inversions. And um, looking back in history, so we calculated this uh, 44 possible spreads in the yield curve and how many of those are actually inverted. Back about three months ago, we reached about 73% of the yield curve was inverted. And then um, and then it started to drop now uh, as the Fed started to ease significantly. Um, and what you saw there is that um, literally every time you hit this 70% handle, uh, those preceded or coincided with the recession. Now, we looked at each of those. And there's about, uh, if you include the double uh, double dip recession as being one, uh, there is you know five incidents in the past that actually we have had a uh, sort of a, you know, what happened after that 70% handle was reached in, in the yield curve? And what are the best investments and what are the worst investments? Investments and what are um, you know best way to protect and did it really was it really a distortion that caused a problem? Um, so the answer for that is is in, and the short answer for that is that the best investment that we found is that if you buy precious metal or buy gold and sell stocks, that was the best way to to really protect your portfolio during those periods. And um, at, at least the median performance of, of gold to S&P 500 ratio is that it doubles during those periods. But that's including a lot of times like, uh, let's say, you know, the SNL crisis, for instance, which is very different macro setup than we have today. Uh, from mm-hmm. the valuations perspective, from commodities perspective, I think that the closest ones are really the commodities. When you looked at the commodities to equity ratio being all, you know, pretty much at a record low uh, or a near record low. Uh, you had other situations like that in 2000 in the 7 and 374. And during those two periods, you also had uh, situations of the 70% inversions in the yield curve as well. So, you know, if you just look at those two cases and you look at the performance of buying gold and selling stocks, I mean, those, you know, it was like a, at least a 150 or so percent 
performance by doing that. Uh, you can you can you can you can take even more risk and, and buy silver. You can take even more risk and take and buy miners. You know, and so you can you can kind of uh, uh, find other ways to express that trade and and and, and take a more risk, as if you will. Um, but um, you know, that's this is kind of where I see uh, uh, the opportunity today. And at the same time, I posted a chart maybe two days ago, looking at the the performance of the S and P five hundred, which is the strongest performance in S and P five hundred in, in the last twenty two years since nineteen ninety seven. Uh, so the setup for a person, the entry point for a person who is looking at this research, the empirical analysis of yield curve inversions and the impacts on that on stocks and gold and precious metals in general, you know, it's a, it's a perfect entry point. It's like a great entry point in our view. So um, we think that that's, you know, perhaps the best way to to uh, to really uh, protect and grow capital for the next two to three years is to buy stocks and sell um, I'm sorry, buy gold and sell stocks. Um, and, you know, and then obviously we have views in China and, and that kind of overlays the, the issues of the currency and so forth uh, that you can, you can, what we call the macro trade of the century, which is buying gold in remembi terms, not even in dollars, in remembi terms, and mm-hmm. then selling uh, global stocks in general. And you can, you know, you can take an even more uh, active approach and search for the most expensive stocks, the softer stocks and you know, a lot mm-hmm. of those IPOs that, that make no money and, and are still value at, at 30 times sales and so forth. I mean, there's plenty of those out there. So, you know, that's kind of our, our approach and how I see it. I mean, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know when the downturn is going to come, but you're already starting to see gold, you know, rallying. I mean, you're starting to see some very interesting moves. Yeah. Why is gold rallying so much? I mean, not so much, but you're seeing there's some pretty significant returns if you bought miners beginning of this year or mid part of the year to now already. And at the same time, it followed the stocks. And there's a lot of days here that we're seeing more and more precious metals outpacing stocks um, on, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. So is, I, I think that that's only going to continue. Um, and that and that real uh, a problem of of commodities to equity ratio uh, is is that's that's the way I, I see today the best way to express those those issues. Yeah, and you mentioned the yield curve. So closing on that, I think it's important for investors to understand whether you're one of the most savvier investors out there, whether you're a PM yourself, or whether you're maybe just the average retail investor. Um, to really understand just the basics of the negative yield, uh, I mean, the, uh, the yield curve inversion. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that piece as far as rates uh, coming down on the longer end and, and that fear that's really out there of why, of why, of what that inversion is kind of telling people. I, I think that well, it all starts with the Fed tightening, right? The Fed tightens first, and then the front end of the curve rises. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's initially what causes the inversion. That's exactly it. Um, and then, um, as you start seeing that issue, um, fat titans, usually the dollar goes higher. A lot of times you can see issues with, uh, foreign reserves of, from other central banks actually being sold. In other words, they're selling treasuries to defend their currencies because the dollar is getting stronger. That happened in 2014, 15, 16. Those, that was, those are the cases. So that causes the long end of the curve to rise as well. There, there are a lot of issues there. Why, why the long end of the curve, uh, you know, um, um, uh, can have other issues too. But initially, is the tightening in the beginning that causes the the 
the yield curve inversion to to really happen. Um, and then the Fed enters in a sort of a panic move, um, and 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 then you you know you start thinking that we're going to have more central bank interventions. They're going to start doing QE again. You start thinking they're going to buy, uh, you know, the long end of the curve, and and some some investors just start to buy uh, long end of the curve as a, as a way of uh, of a safe haven, uh, um, uh, I guess, or a defensive play. Um, and 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 that's where you see you know the the real surge on 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 the yield curve inversions, which is kind of what we saw in three months ago or so. Um, and then that, that's, you know, that's kind of where the issue, uh, I think, in, in a lot of times in the yield curve, going back to the 70s, is kind of how that plays out, especially in the last few years or so. Um, so and my answer to your question is, it's kind of a, now, now in terms of, um, in terms of the stocks, uh, um, I think, you know, they're, you know, especially right now, I mean, you had this very similar situation from um, 06 and 07 in terms of stocks were also, you know, rising uh, at, a, at a period when yield curving versions are rising at the same time. Uh, in, in 2000 was pretty similar too. Um, and the SNL crisis was a very different scenario, which uh, you had the yield curving versions, but it wasn't really, didn't really cause a, a uh, bear market on stocks. Uh, bear market didn't really happen, and I guess is also because of uh, how fundamental of companies were at the time it was very different than today. I mean, companies are actually making money back then; they're actually historically cheap at that time. When today we have quite the opposite. You know, you, you can you can look back in history and see valuations today. If, if just just a mean reversion sort of move on stocks would actually would be at least a forty five to fifty percent decline from prices from to where they are today. So you know, which is similar to what we saw in in the tech bust and the global financial crisis. Um, I think the worst type of uh, of recession would be the type of uh, the the 70s, you know, which is kind of an inflationary bust, especially given today would be worse than the 70s because we have, you know, housing prices uh, near all time highs, depending on where you are from. Uh, uh, you have you, know, you have bonds uh, being overvalued. Uh, you have a case for equities being extremely overvalued. You have a case for private equities being also at an extremely overvalued. You have a case for even treasuries itself, right, being uh, uh, perhaps uh, overvalued given the imbalances in the government debt and so forth. So if you have a sort of inflationary bust, I mean, I can't even think of how terrible would that be for, for, for markets in general. I think because the market and the Federal Reserve is, I mean, the markets are kind of addicted to this kind of sort of interventions from the Federal Reserve. And, and if that happens, you know, you, you can't really, you have to do a more restrictive policy instead and not accommodative. And, and, and that takes, takes away the, uh, you know, the, the donut, if you will, <laughs> naming your, your podcast here, <laughs> uh, from, from the market, exactly. you know, and it's just necessarily, I mean, that, that, that would be, that would be a, a huge problem that I don't think markets are really pricing in, um, that type of environment going forward. <clears throat> Yeah, when you look at global yields the way where there are and equity markets where they are, something definitely has to give. And uh, not to uh, trash the equity PMs out there, but um, historically, at least the uh, the saying goes, the fixed income uh, you know crowd is is ahead of the pack. That can be debated, but I think we'll close on there. Now, where we can find your work and um, hear more about. Uh, some of your views. 
Yeah. Um, well, I very active uh, or fairly active on social media, in, especially in, uh, on Twitter uh, at Tavi Costa. Uh, Kevin Smith, uh, our CIO here at Cresca Capital, is also very active. I'm not sure the Zendo, but it's, I think it's at, Krav, at Kevin Smith Cresca, I believe. I'll link it in the bio. Perfect. Uh, but uh, he's uh, also uh, fairly active. We, you know, we share our views on, especially in our three high conviction themes, um, which is uh, being, you know, U.S. markets being at a historically overvalued in terms of fundamentals versus prices. We have a view on precious metals, and we share a lot of things on precious metals, being long precious metals. And we also have a view on China, uh, which we think is the largest credit bubble we've seen in history. And we share a lot of insights on that too. Um, and, you know, I think that that's the best way. We write letters quarterly and monthly, uh, which offers, you know, we kind of pick our best charts that we found uh, that we created during that period of month or quarter and, and kind of put along with our views and, and, and try to find, you know, kind of a, always refreshing the best ways of, of kind of aligning with those high conviction ideas that can change over time as well, obviously. So, uh, but right now those are, that's kind of where we are uh, continuing to, uh, to kind of support our, our thesis going forward. Great. Well, Tavi, this was great and really happy to have you on and um, we really appreciate it. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. And I've, uh, I, I, I had a great time and I look forward to having other conversations like this with you in the future. Thanks, Tavi. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.